to Humanities Now, the official podcast of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. We're glad to have you back with us for our first fall episode after a summer hiatus. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Borshek, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Director of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Humanities Now features monthly conversations with members of the humanities community here at TTU. With every episode, these varied voices help us realize the center's mission, asking out loud, what does it mean to be human? And demonstrating how we can answer that question from so many different perspectives. The start of the fall semester brings with it the onset of a new programming theme for the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. This year's theme is health, a topic that couldn't be timelier. Globally, we remain imperiled by the persistence of COVID-19, even as we argue daily about what constitutes an appropriate response, both collectively and individually. Consensus eludes us as we negotiate competing ideological definitions of health, wellness, and community. How do we define health? Is it rooted in the body, in a freedom from illness or impediments to functionality? If we revealed ourselves as unable to concur on exacting definitions, though, of illness or functionality. It seems we've struggled to collectively determine what freedoms we're entitled to, or what impediments we should work to remove, or even whether it's foundationally unhealthy to privilege the body above all other aspects of our being. If nothing else, the antagonism around these questions remind us how health and wellness are anything but objective ideas. They are constructions varying by subject position and privilege, circumscribed by culture and systems of belief. This year's programming also extends key conversations from our other recent themes, like forests two years ago or anti-racism last year. Forests asked us to scrutinize our relationship to the environment and question the narrow ways we define human as a privileged category. Anti-racism put critical pressure on white supremacy's enduring power across culture and institutions and advocated intersectional thinking as we work toward justice and redress. Similarly, this year's theme is necessarily a confrontation with accepted taxonomies and the ideological foundations of diagnostic practice or biomedical aspiration. This year, we will imagine multiple ways of being healthy and critique definitions of wellness or ability. We will close the gap between the mind and the body. On today's show, we'll hear from multiple members of the programming team who have constructed this year's theme, co-organizers Julie Zook and Jacob Baum, and team members Victoria Sutton, Emily Skidmore, and Paul Reinch. Across these five conversations, we see the range of humanities perspectives we will bring to our theme this year and the variety of questions that will shape our events. All of this after a short break. Did you know that you can donate directly to the Humanities Center at Texas Tech? Gifts to our Excellence Fund supplement the generous funding we receive from the President's Office, the Provost's Office, and the Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation. Your gift supports the free programming we offer, including online seminars, local film showings, art exhibitions, and a wide array of visiting speakers. Donations also help promote faculty research like that featured on today's show, or allow us to support graduate students in the humanities by funding participation in national conferences and seminars. And it helps pay for this show. 
If you're interested in donating to the Humanity Center, please visit our website, humanitycenter.ttu.edu, and click on the big red donate button on the front page. Thank you. First up on the show today, Dr. Julie Zook, Assistant Professor of Architecture. As Julie helps us see, we cannot understand health without thinking about the physical world we inhabit or the built environments we navigate in the everyday. My name is Julie Zook, and I'm one of the organizers of the Humanity Center sponsored theme on health this year. I'm an assistant professor in architecture here at Texas Tech. So in architecture, we spend a lot of time talking about aesthetics, and we spend a lot of time talking about the material realities of putting together a building. I'm committed to both of those things. But additionally, a lot of my research looks at spatial patterns, the way that the world exists as a collection of spatial configurations. And the details of these and the sort of features of these that affect individuals and social groups. My interest in health also has to do with the concern with how opportunities for health are distributed and monetized or not monetized. And this becomes an issue of justice. For freedom to be effective and real for people, People need to have opportunities to do things or to become things or to maintain certain capabilities. And in many ways, this becomes an issue of the physical environments within which people live out their lives. In my research, I apply social science methods and some other forms of inquiry about how architectural spaces might work better and how they came to be the way that they are. I have a recent book uh, written with a number of colleagues called The Covert Life of Hospital Architecture, and it digs into floor plan layouts, again, this issue of spatial configuration and how they affect the lives of people in them. So this book has chapters on ways we can reduce mortality rates in intensive care units, ways we can design so that it's easier for nurses to work as teams, and ways that we can set up hospital corridor systems so they're not so inutterably confusing and alienating for the visitors who come to use those spaces. In my design studios, when I work with students there, I'm often interested in exploring new concepts or new ideas that we can bring to health. For example, what happens if you design a clinic, but in doing so, you follow many of the norms that you would use for a house? So in a house, you don't have windowless rooms, in in most cases. In a house, you don't have long corridors with doors opening off of both sides. If you restrain your clinic design to some of these tendencies in home design, it's going to be more humanizing. Uh, In other projects with student uh, design work, uh, I've looked at psych ERs and how you could introduce spaces in which patients are calmed. And this is an alternative to the ER spaces 
being so disturbing to patients that a patient might come in needing minimum forms of care, but finds the environment so aggravating that after being there for a while, they require restraint and inpatient admission. So I've had students do really beautiful work creating new sequences of spaces for ERs that create an option whereby a patient can be calmed, can maintain an egalitarian footing with their care providers, and can be treated and sent back to the community rather than put into inpatient care. So what does this have to do with the humanities? I'm obviously an architectural designer and researcher. Well, I don't think we can design healthcare spaces without understanding the humanities. For example, if you don't understand nurses and their history, it's really difficult to appreciate their role and to design uh, settings that support and affirm the work that they do. In many cases, they are aiming to bring something humanistic into a job that's dominated by functional tasks. And you really have to understand the health humanities to appreciate this and bring this into your designs. So I'm excited for this lecture series and the film series and the conference because for me, it's a chance to understand these things better and to integrate a humanities scholarship into my own work as a designer. Thank you, Julie. Next up is Julie's co-organizer for the health theme, Dr. Jacob Baum from the Department of History. As a historian, Jacob helps us think about the variability of health as a concept across time. That is, how we take care of ourselves is ever-changing, and the idealized state we call healthy might mean something very different from one period to the next. My name is Jacob Baum, and I'm an associate professor of history at TTU. With Julie Zook, I'm one of the co-organizers of this year's Humanities Center theme, Health. Whereas Julie's work focuses on questions of health as they relate to spatial patterns of organization, I, as an historian, I'm interested in the fourth dimension, that is to say, time. How do the ways people conceptualize health change over time? How do they stay the same? What are the origins of the ways people understand health? And above all, how have these dynamics had a material impact on how people take care of themselves and one another across the broad expanse of human history? These are the big questions that I find myself preoccupied by, and I've tried to answer them in my own narrow field of research expertise, namely the German-speaking world of the 15th through 18th centuries. This was a pre-industrial society, a time and place in which the most fundamental ideas about the natural order of the world were rather different than our own contemporary notions, and one in which people had a very different set of resources at their disposal to solve the problems they confronted in their daily lives. As such, rather different approaches to caring for human health prevailed. To paint in a rather broad strokes, the view of health was quite holistic, incorporating not only physical or something approaching what we might think of as biological explanations of the normative functioning of the human body, but also environmental, social, even moral, psychological, and spiritual factors. One's well-being was shaped by the balance of internal bodily fluids, referred to at the time as humors, a physiological theory going back to ancient Greece. This balance, however, wasn't the product of individual biology or genetics. Rather, 
It was dynamic, fluctuating in accordance with all manner of substances, salubrious or dangerous, that one encountered in one's day-to-day surroundings. It was also a product of one's position within the social hierarchy, whether one was a child or adult, male or female, gainfully employed in a trade or dangerously idle. All of this was accounted for when thinking with and about health in this world. Something along the lines of what we think of today as mental health was included too. Indeed, both religious and more naturalistic ways of thinking tended to blur lines between the physical body, the mind, and the soul. My current research into the history of deaf and hearing impaired people in this part of the world can provide some specific and concrete examples of what this looked like in practice. Currently, I'm writing a narrative history based on the autobiographical manuscript of a man named Sebastian Fischer, an adventitiously deaf shoemaker who lived in southern Germany in the first half of the 16th century. Fischer's manuscript is a remarkable source for disability history before the modern age for many reasons. But here, let me just share one. At the age of 22, Fischer began to lose his sense of hearing and recorded the experience in extraordinary detail, explaining not only what it meant to him, but also how he attempted to recover his hearing over the next five years. Many of the interventions recommended to him by professional healers and physicians drew on the ancient physiological theories I've just described and were intended to reestablish the proper humoral balance in Fisher's body and thereby restore his hearing. This pre-modern theory, however, was clearly intertwined with social, religious, and moral sensibilities. For example, many of the recommended cures combined the use of herbs, poultices, and other substances believed to affect humoral balance with traditional prayers, blessings, and rituals. This combination is especially interesting because Sebastian Fischer was an early convert to the Protestant Reformation, which regarded such traditional religious practices with a good deal of suspicion. What I think this shows us, however, is that an underlying holistic conception of health remained remarkably persistent, in spite of such supposedly modernizing forces as Protestant Christianity. So, What significance do the experiences of someone like Sebastian Fischer have for us today? Certainly, there were all kinds of problems associated with how people in the deeper past thought about and cared for health, and so this is by no means a call to return to those ways. Such examples are useful, however, when we confront challenges in our own times, because they model the simple fact that the concept of health varies quite significantly across times and places. When we recognize this, we might be encouraged to question and creatively rethink our own approaches to health, which we often take for granted as natural and self-evident. If the last two and a half years of COVID have taught us anything, it's that biomedical solutions, as impressive as they are, are really only part of the larger equation of how we care for health. A discussion about a more holistic view of health seems necessary, and the humanities, I think, can enrich this discussion. Up next on the program is Dr. Victoria Sutton, Paul Whitfield Horn Distinguished Professor in the Texas Tech School of Law. Professor Sutton is an appointee to Governor Greg Abbott's Task Force on Infectious Diseases here in Texas, and among the many areas that she teaches and writes about is biosecurity law, as she discusses with us here. 
Hi, I'm Professor Victoria Sutton from the School of Law. I teach a course called Global Biosecurity Law, and that's concerned about things like regulating law, countries, the relationship between nations, and pandemics. So uh, with the COVID-19 outbreak, a lot of questions came up about how COVID-19 actually emerged. And one of the specialty areas I have is laboratory biosafety and biosecurity. So gain of function was the question that came up and was one of the first um, possibilities of creating a virus that was unusual that would infect the world. So what is gain of function? Terms like dual use were developed to identify those pathogens that could be both used for a helpful life-saving research or used for developing bioweapons, either one. These required increased scrutiny and oversight in the laboratory, particularly for a classification called dual use for research of concern, or DERC. And these were the kinds of viruses and bacteria that could be used as bioweapons and that were particularly risky. So gain of function is the research method of enhancing a characteristic of a virus or bacteria in order to be able to study and observe its mechanisms for that characteristic, such as infectivity, virulence, or even its fatality rate. And these experiments were so potentially dangerous that a special review was required to determine if the risk of the research was even worth the value of the potential increase in knowledge about the subject virus or bacteria. But in 2014, the White House announced a moratorium on gain-of-function research while they engaged in a process to determine its safety. And here's what the research body wrote. During this pause, the U.S. government will not fund any new projects involving these experiments and encourages those currently conducting this type of work, whether federally funded or not, to voluntarily pause their research while risk and benefits are being reassessed. However, there was a specific exclusion for SARS, which is the class of virus of COVID-19, as explained in the next line in the White House announcement, which read, the funding pause will not apply to the characterization or testing of naturally occurring influenza, MERS, and SARS viruses, unless there is a reasonable expectation that these tests would increase transmissibility or pathogenicity. So increasing transmissibility and pathogenicity would be one of the two characteristics most likely to be selected for gain-of-function research. So, quote, a reasonable expectation was a standard for whether one could do research with SARS using gain-of-function. That's a very low standard with a lot of room for exceptions. So the National Science Advisory Board, NSABB, was appointed to look at issues such as this. And they looked at this and came up with a category that was gain-of-function research of concern. And they also suggested that certain mitigation requirements should be put in place to oversee that and that it should be um, um, have serious oversight. And until some rules were developed, it should be suspended. But one of the um, uh, experimentation Uh, experimentation continued with SARS. And so now let's turn to the Wuhan laboratory. 
And China also has biosecurity and biosafety regulations, just like the U.S., and they're just as um, extensive as we have in the U.S., in fact. But China lacks the rigorous enforcement and strength of the rule of law in making sure that there is compliance with those rules. So while regulations may exist, safety failures occur due in part to uncertainty about even complying with the regulations and enforcement. So then regulation article 33 of China's biosecurity law, it reads, in case of any theft, robbery, loss, or leakage of highly pathogenic microorganisms in the laboratory, the establisher of the laboratory shall make a report thereon in accordance with Article 17 of these regulations, which said you report a leakage or a loss or robbery. So when the United States and WHO investigated the incident in China, China should have produced these records and shown either that there was a leak or this could also have proved that perhaps there wasn't a leak of COVID-19 if a report had not been made or in their file. But no, none of this was forthcoming. None of it. So that suggests that perhaps they actually didn't keep records or comply with their own regulations. So um, even though there is concern about an accidental release, and even if the United States was supporting gain-of-function research, as you saw from the way the White House memo was written, there are exceptions to gain-of-function, and SARS was particularly removed from that um, group of prohibited viruses for gain-of-function. So there's actually no violation of policy. So first, the lack of accidental releases to show there was none related to COVID-19 should have been produced by the Wuhan Institute of Virology upon investigation, as I just described. Second, a patient zero was found very early in the 2003 SARS investigation, and yet China has yet to identify a patient zero for COVID-19. That would be likely dispositive as to the two theories of COVID-19's origin. Did it come from the, the Wuhan wet market with animals or did it come from the laboratory? And third, investigations and previous genetic engineering have found the laboratory accidental release a plausible theory. And just as plausible as the competing theory that it came from a wet market. China's refusal to cooperate with the international community in an investigation of the origin of the virus in Wuhan, which is not in dispute, it's not in dispute that it came from Wuhan, deprives the world of answers that could save us and humanity in the next pandemic. Well, Professor Sutton gives us insight into public health issues on a global scale, historian Emily Skidmore points us back to the unequal access to wellness across populations here in the United States. Thinking about varying obstacles to well-being, Dr. Skidmore reminds us that not all Americans have equal access to health on their own terms. My name is Emily Skidmore, and I am an associate professor of history at Texas Tech University. My research and teaching interests focus on histories of women, gender, and sexuality, and as such, my work touches on issues of health in a number of different ways. I'm currently working on a book about the history of breastfeeding advocacy in the United States. 
As such, I watched with great interest the media coverage of the formula shortage in the spring of this year. Um, And what really stuck out to me in listening and watching um, that discourse was that it made clear the gaps in public knowledge around infant feeding um, and really made clear to me the importance of work on the in the humanities on issues of health, especially regarding issues of reproductive justice. Uh, for those of you who were not aware, in the late spring of 2022, a shortage of baby formula created panic as parents worried about not being able to find enough food to feed their infants. This worry was particularly pronounced among low-income women of color, who CDC data show rely on formula to feed their babies at higher rates than white women and women above the poverty line. In response to this crisis, some pundits worried very unhelpfully why these parents didn't simply breastfeed their babies as breastfeed was breast milk was supposedly free and without supply chain issues. Uh, one example on May 12th of this year, uh, Bette Midler tweeted to her 2.1 million followers in all caps, try breastfeeding. It is free and available on demand. <sighs> yeah. Uh, This interpretation wildly misinterprets the situation that new parents face. In order to breastfeed, new parents need access to support and resources such as lactation consultants and breast pumps. Additionally, without paid family leave, many parents need to go back to work shortly after giving birth. In order to continue breastfeeding, such parents need to have a private location to pump milk every few hours and a 20 to 30 minute break in which to do so, as well as access to a refrigerator to store the milk and a sink to sanitize bottles and pump parts, a set of circumstances that very few low wage earning workers have. Uh, These challenges are, of course, compounded for trans and non-binary parents who navigate this terrain while also encountering lactation consultants who misgender them and or lack training in queer and trans issues. Also, it's no surprise that today's pundits question why so many parents rely on formula to feed their infants. As the past 30 years, we've witnessed breastfeeding advocacy become mainstream. The dominant messaging on breastfeeding has shifted dramatically in the past several generations, from the 1950s when medical authorities would extol the miraculous modern miracle of formula, to today when breastfeeding is often celebrated as the gold standard of infant nutrition and also the gold standard of good parenting today. And as I've described previously, Millions of new parents today lack the resources to breastfeed successfully, and yet doctors and pundits and nosy neighbors still breezily extol breast is best without reference to the structural barriers that prevent many parents, especially women of color, poor women, and trans folks from breast or chest feeding. So my research on the history of breastfeeding advocacy in the United States from the 1940s to the present I'm exploring whose interests are being served by breastfeeding advocacy, whose babies are seen as worthy of investing in, whose autonomy is prioritized, and how proper parenthood is still defined in reference to class, race, and gender. 
And notably, and surprisingly to me, one thing I've noticed in my research is that the women's movement of the 1960s and 1970s largely ignored breastfeeding as an issue of bodily autonomy. And so a lot of what I'm doing in my research is thinking about the implications of mid-20th century breastfeeding advocacy, which has emerged largely outside of a feminist framework and has largely focused on white middle-class women. Uh, In my book in progress, I explore the ways in which breastfeeding has always been a flashpoint wherein social expectations of gender and parenthood are debated and contested and continually redefined. I see discussions of breastfeeding, such as the one around the formula crisis this spring, as representing a distillation of the conflicting social expectations around proper gender roles and the correct way to parent. Imbricated within all of these conversations are notions of race and class, age, bodily autonomy, and sexuality. And of course, issues of health undergird all of these. As such, I'm so excited to be a part of this year's Humanity Center theme of health and its related programming. Looking forward. Thanks. Finally today, we hear from media historian Paul Reich, who helps us consider representations of bodies and health on screen as a lead-in to the films we'll be hosting here in Lubbock at Alamo Drafthouse this year. While movies often suggest a naturalness to their presentation of actors' physicality, Dr. Reich helps us think about the ideological weight behind these images and tropes. I'm Paul Reich, Associate Professor of Practice in Stage Screen Studies, and I teach in the School of Theater and Dance. If you're like me, I bet you've heard several stories from friends and family members about meeting a celebrity. And unless that celebrity is also a basketball player, there's a good chance that the story included a phrase similar to, they were much smaller than I expected. Folks have been saying this about media celebrities for more than a hundred years now. We might explain this by noting the size of movie screens and their ability to make human faces 30 feet tall or 70 feet tall in an IMAX theater. But screens in the late 19th and early 20th centuries were not this large. And today, if you're like me, you access media on screens in your home, office, and even in your hand that are not close to being 30 feet tall. So I don't think scale is at issue here. And in fact, when movie stars are described as smaller than I expected, I don't think their physical stature is the real source of the comment. I think such comments reveal the fundamentally distorting nature of movies. Theater and media scholar Sarah Bae Jung explores the connections between the performing arts and audiovisual media, or between theater and movies. She argues that to understand a filmed play, we need to consider what she calls the dramaturgy of distortion. Bae Jung argues that to record and edit a live performance is to change it, and so we must acknowledge and study those changes. Beyond film versions of plays, The idea of distortion is vital when considering media. Of course movie stars are not abnormally large. Stars are just like us. We should have believed us weakly for all these years. But we can be forgiven for succumbing to this distortion because a movie star is always more than a single body and single voice. It takes a village to make a movie star. Dieticians, physical trainers, accent coaches, hairstylists, costume specialists, camera operators, 
audio recordists, and lighting designers, among others, collaborate to create the images and sounds of bodies. Bodies that are too good to be true. Keep in mind that these are only the folks whose labor is admitted and advertised. How many of our favorite performances are actually stitched together like Frankenstein's monster? Dancers in cinema are often turned into legs, feet, or an arm without getting credit, in multiple senses, for their labor. Their expertise is, most obviously through editing, tied to a body other than their own, most likely the body of a star, someone who's paid a lot more money. And more than body parts, voices, too, are often synced up with bodies that have nothing to do with those sounds. A slew of beloved musicals are built on such lies. For example, as much as I am glad Richard Beamer, as great as he is, does not sing in 1961's West Side Story, it pains me to know that not even Rita Moreno does all her own singing in that film. The bodies that movies regularly present as whole and healthy often do not, strictly speaking, exist at all. They are movie bodies. They are movie humans. But the impact of these bodies and the impact of these ideas about health are all too real. To consider health in the frame of movies allows us to consider what bodies are presented to us as healthy, what bodies are offered not just as ideal, but, more problematically, as normal. All too often, movies present difference as failure, difference as a lack. All too often, movies present difference as a problem that needs to be solved. To succeed in the narrative of all too many films is to become like everyone else, or at a minimum to abandon a supportive subculture for more mainstream culture, for a character to accept themselves as lacking, to accept the label of unhealthy. The health of a community might be evaluated by exploring what that group considers true, what that group considers entertaining, and what that group considers to be normal. More concretely in terms of movies, what content results in the most streaming hours? What films put the most bodies in seats? And speaking of bodies in seats, we hope you'll join us for one or more of our featured films. The programmers are united in the belief that a healthy society communicates with itself and about itself. We want to hear from you and join you in talking about and talking back to movies. So we've scheduled the 2019 film Sound of Metal for November 9th, and there will be three more films playing in the series in the spring. The series is designed to be cumulative, with the films adding up to, we hope, more than the sum of their parts. But each film can be experienced on its own terms and has been chosen to function as a springboard for conversation, a conversation on health that can only benefit from including your voice. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Humanities Now. I'm grateful to Professors Zook, Baum, Sutton, Skidmore, and Reinch for sharing their ideas with us. And I invite you to join us for next month's episode when we continue to explore other aspects of the health theme. Thank you to Aubrey Harris, who joins us with this episode as our new sound editor, and to Madison Wheeler, Executive Administrative Assistant at the Humanities Center. As always, major gratitude to Tyler Simpson for our original theme music. Be safe and be well, and we'll be back with you next month.